Before we start this episode, we'd like to give a massive thanks to Jordan Freeman and the Zoom platform for setting up this interview. This is an audio version of the full video version of the interview we had with Stephen Kent. If you would like to see the full video version, please check the link in your podcatcher. This is part four of a four-part interview with Stephen Kent. If you have missed any of the previous episodes, feel free to go back and give them a listen. We hope you had as much fun listening to them as we did recording them for you. We had an absolute blast talking to Stephen about his books, The Ultimate History of Video Games, Volume 1 and 2. They are great books, so definitely check them out if you get the chance. With all that being said, please enjoy the show. So we have a question from um, our friend Unaffiliated Jay-Z. We call him that because we don't want people to think that it is... Yeah, we don't want people to think that it's Jay-Z the rapper, right? So he's unaffiliated. <laughs> and he loves his and unaffiliated so Jaffa says, cakes as well. That's it. <laughs> so what he says is, which is the best console ever and why was it the SNES? <laughs> yeah, you know, there. Are, I know a lot of people who feel that way about the SNES. Um, a lot of people, and Super NES was it was a good console. I will confess that for me, the 16-bit generation couldn't die quickly enough. Mm. Um, because I felt that a lot of the 16-bit generation was just much prettier versions of 8-bit games. Um, yeah, with the exception of fighting games. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. I mean, even you know, now looking back, I think people would the first game that would come to mind when people think about the 16-bit generation. A lot of people are going to jump right on onto um, Donkey Kong Country. Um, yeah, but it was a side scroller. It was a very you know, you could have done it. It wouldn't have looked as good, but you could have done that game on an NES cartridge. Mm. Um. Mm. You know, whereas so much that came out in the 32-bit, 64-bit generation really was new. Uh, so I think that the that the Super NES was a fabulous console. I really do. Uh, head and shoulders above its competitors. And when I say its competitors, here's here I am sticking my foot in my mouth again. But really, truly, I group the 3DO and the Jaguar more with the Super NES um, than I do with the with the Saturn and the and the PlayStation and the sixty and the N sixty four. Sure. It was you know it, it was a SNES was a great console. I don't think I think that it could have been better supported with with more with a wider variety of games. But at the time, people really wanted fighting games, and they still wanted side scrollers. Mm. Um, so, yep. uh, so if I'm going to pick the most, to me, when you say best console, I want the one that was the most exciting. And I think we may have talked about this last time, 
that I would take the, the time period of the NES and the time period of the PlayStation 2 because with those two consoles, every weekend, if you went to the mall, there was something new and unexpected. And yeah. new kinds of gameplay all the time. I don't think we've had anything like that. You know, they they had great fighting games. Uh, really, 3D was realized, I think, more during the PlayStation 2 than, than during the PlayStation. You know, I mm. mean, for me, one of the, the greatest... My favorite PlayStation PlayStation game is still Castlevania Symphony of the Night. And, you know, just a phenomenal game, but you could have played mm. it on an NES. It wouldn't have looked as good, it wouldn't have sounded as good, but the gameplay was identical. That's what made it so wonderful. You know, and, mm. and games like Maximo, which attempted to take that into 3D, didn't do as well. Um... So, but then all of a sudden you get the PlayStation 2 and you've got Guitar Hero. You've got really beautifully realized 3D. You've got, Mm. uh, you know, I mean, just they just did everything. There was so much creativity and so many different kinds of games came on. And, and, you know, you couldn't wait for E3, you know, Mm. to see what, what everything. And it was the same thing with the NES, you know, which could have done only what Atari 2600 had done, but instead gave you everything, you know, almost everything that we still play. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, uh, definitely the birthplace of some very endearing and long-lasting um, genre, uh, not genres, um, types of games so like uh, yeah, I, metroid I, mario i take genres you know there's, there's there's a lot of them that started on the the nes and some people don't even realize it yeah. you know um you know it was especially for me i remember when um when um i think it was either prime or fusion metroid the, the gamecube one the one that was first right. person that's one Prime. When Metroid Prime first came out, I confused the hell out of my friends because one of them said, "Have you have you played Metroid?" And I said, "No, I think my NES is in the uh, the attic." And they went, "What?" I went, mm-hmm. "Metroid." It my my NES is in the attic, and he went, "What?" And I said, "You asked about Metroid? No, the new one on GameCube. So you're not on about the the NES one?" No, I said, "Well, ask me the right question next time." <laughs> well, it's on the NES. It's in the attic. I I don't have access to it. You what? You know. <laughs> Oh, was that a, yeah, I, that was a beautiful game, Metroid Prime. That was one of the games when when a when an amazing game comes out and it doesn't didn't happen very often. I would get so hooked that finally my wife would basically have to ban me from playing it. <laughs> and Metroid Prime, was such no a controller for you. Oh, Give me that yeah. controller. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, I think um I yeah, I, I I feel like I agree with you, Stephen, in that um at the point when um the NES came out, it was a case of not not what should we do, but what can we do, right? And it was more playing with the technology, what can we actually do with this thing? I mean you can see that now with people going back and making their uh, 
I don't think a homebrew is the right word, but making their own homebrew games for the NES, for the SNES, for the, the, the mass system, the Genesis, that kind of thing. Dreamcast. Because still going for the Dreamcast. They still, well. yeah, they mm. give those, give those, those people those limitations. And guess what? Okay, right. We have to fit all of this data onto uh, 28 kilobits or something, mm. you know? And, and I think, I think with those restrictions in place, you get greater creativity. Well, and, and it gave us one of then, you know, one of the great minds of that period is your countryman, um, Chris Stamp, you know, who mm-hmm. took technology people thought they knew what it could do and showed the world that, you know, it could do 10 times more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think had it not been for Chris Stamp or the NES might not have been as well received or, or as brilliant as it was, and if it weren't for the NES, I don't know that we'd know what a what an incredible incredible genius Chris Stamper was. Mm. Mm-hmm. Have you guys met him? Uh, I feel similarly. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, we haven't. No, I'm have to see if I can track him down and see if I can. Uh, Get him on the show, I think. I think that would be an interesting conversation. Worth, worth a drive to Hawaii <laughs> Cross, I'll tell you. He is a consummate gentleman. Okay. Okay, I'll have to see if I can uh, track him down and see if we can get him on the show. What do you think, Squidge? That's worth a shot, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you guys stand a good I chance. Feel, um, I think he'll be fascinated that you guys have such a good handle on the technical side of things. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank we try. you very much. We try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I think I tend to agree with you. Um, uh, th- th- this, there's something you said there about taking the the hardware and showing people what it can do, and I feel like um, John Carmack did that uh, similarly oh, yeah. with Doom for the PC, right? Um, because there's this wonderful story. I don't know whether you've ever read it, but there's this wonderful story in um, Masters of Doom. Which I've read. About how... Sweet. <laughs> so, so uh, one particular story? Uh-oh, I think he's frozen. So you. Give it a second. Yeah, I think he might be frozen. We'll come back in a second, I think. My question oh, gave him a headache. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Looks like I disconnected. That's fine. But uh, the way this works, uh, I would have still kept talking. So future Jamie cut all that bit out. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, uh, John Carmack has uh, has a similar ability, I think, with uh, PC hardware in that um, there's this wonderful story in Masters of Doom. I'm just redoing this bit so I can get mm-hmm. the run up to what I was saying. I'll sort of cut it in. Um, wonderful story in, in um, Masters of Doom where the two Johns ended up buying a NES and put Super Mario Brothers 3 into it. And whilst Romero was playing it, Carmack was recreating it on screen. And at a time when Nintendo said, we're not going to license our console games to PC video game manufacturers because what we're doing can't be done on the PC. And there's this um, Carmack and Romero basically recreated the, the first level of Super Mario Brothers 3 in a weekend, sent it to Nintendo of America and said, we'd like to license this. Could we please license this and release Super Mario Brothers on the PC? And they got a very, very nicely worded um, cease and desist from Nintendo of America. Mm-hmm. Stop ripping off our, our content. And I'm like, y- it, the, 
I mean, there, there is Ugh. there is a rare breed of person who can do that, but there's also a rare breed. It goes hand in hand with another rare breed of person where you tell them something can't be done and they will go all out to prove you wrong. Either prove you wrong or just say, I've got the makings of doing it. You when said it couldn't be, college, and I'm going to do it, yeah. When I was in college, home box office came out with a... They hired the company that did the encryption for NASA to do an encryption for them. And mm. when it was done, they announced that we've had... We hired these, this company. We are now, you know... You can't... No one can touch us. And was... You don't challenge those people because those people no. will show you what you're about. It took them almost a weekend to fit to crack that un unbreakable code. <laughs> a weekend? Yeah. Oh, and we've lost Jamie again. You know, the other thing I was going to say while Jamie's coming back is just that um, with uh, with Chris Stamper, he went to a known system and said, hey, guys, here are the things you don't know are in here. With John mm. Carmack, it was the reverse. He, he got so good and so respected that people would come to him. Not John. Yeah, with, with yeah. John Carmack. They'd come to him and they'd mm. say, what do you want us to put in next? You know? <laughs> yeah, you give us a shopping list and we'll get you it. Yeah. 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 So, Carmack is, mm. I mean, you know, I, I think history will show that the Unreal engines uh, were better than the Doom engines. But I also think that, you know, Carmack um, put himself out first. Carmack would, would come out with it, and then Sweeney would look at what Carmack had done and find ways to improve on it. But, mm. you know, so Carmack is the pioneer and Sweeney is the innovator. Yeah. Um, I Personally, I think, I, I think Sweeney's great. I, I have a little more respect for the pioneer. Sure. Um, one of the things that I do with uh, junior developers, when I take a junior developer under my wing and want to mentor them, um, I'll tell them, it's a meme. I know it's a meme, but it's a meme for a reason. Go go study the Doom source code, right? Because it is so well written, that is the reason why it keeps getting ported to everything. Because all you need to do is hook into the visual side of it, the control side of it, and the sound side of it. So for, um, for people who don't know, um, video game engines are usually written in such a way that everything is modularized. So the, the input can be handled by some piece of code over here. The screenwriting can be handled by some, oh well, writing to the screen, mm. drawing on the screen can be handled by some code over here. Uh, audio production can be done by this bit. Physics is over there. Your game rules and, and, uh, sort of logic can be over here. Um, and that's, that's how you would, that's how you would have to write a game when you were first making one. But most of the time, because it was never going to be cross-platform, a SNES game would be written very specifically for the SNES hardware and wouldn't be cross-compatible. You know, there would be no way to convert a SNES game to um, uh, the Genesis, for instance, without actually going and recreating it frame by frame, still by still, and rebuilding it completely. But what Carmack did for the Doom Source Engine was he split everything out because he knew that he would have to 
run it on um, DOS, on Windows, and on Mac OS. And those three systems have completely different systems for drawing on the screen and making sounds happen and taking input from the user. So he separated all of those concerns out. We talk about uh, separating concerns in computer programming. And he separated all of those out. They built every single piece of it completely separately and had almost like a messaging system between them. And that is why uh, it's always... You see it all the time, right? Oh, wow, I've got Doom running on an oscilloscope. Oh, wow, we've got Doom. There was one um, a few months back. We have Doom running on a, on a pregnancy. I saw that one. That because was it is entirely possible to do that because the code is written so well. It's got nothing to do with, oh, it's an old game so it can run. A, no, it's because the code is written so well. Yeah. Plus, That's my little tirade about plus, it. Who, who doesn't you like know, blasting aliens on Mars, you know? <laughs> He's, an, he's an interesting guy. When you meet Carmack, he's an interesting guy. He's very, very, very smart. But he's very patient, and he's, and he's interesting to talk to. You know, I did when I did the book on the making of Doom 3, I spent a couple of weeks over in, you know, at, in the Doom offices interviewing everybody, and John Carmack made himself incredibly available for interviews. So. Mm. Nice guy. Mm. Mm. He seems it. Um, the developers that I've spoken to that have met him have said he has opinions on certain things to do with development, but if you can convince him otherwise, he'll go, okay, we'll do it like that from now on then. Yeah. Because if that's the way we do it, then that's the way we do it, right? He's not. He doesn't seem very, um, from what I've been told, very... Um, evangelical about you must do it this way you must do it that way if you can come up with a better way of doing it and you have a good reason for it cool let's do it that way so <laughs> when i was in dallas interviewing them and doing writing that book there's a story about john carmack doing exactly what you're talking about which is that his wife anna kang had gone and bought a bunch of furniture for their house so he's home alone i don't think he even knew the furniture was coming there's a knock on the door and he opens the door, and some the, the delivery guy says, "Are you Mr. Kang?" And he said, "Close enough." And he opened the doors and let them come in. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Close enough. I mean, it's it's a good philosophy to have because if if you're not open minded, especially I'm not a programmer, but I can imagine that if you're not open minded when it comes to programming, and you're not your your way of thinking isn't malleable enough to see things from a different angle. You'll never learn, which means you'll never evolve and you'll be left in the dust. So he's got the right way of doing it, which is, okay, if I'm wrong and this is a better way of doing it, let's adopt that. Well, so the thing it's, about a John Carmack or a Mark Cerny or a Tim Sweeney and probably probably to a Chris, a, a Chris Stamper as well, um, is that I think they see everything from every angle. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it's it's also important to know that there is no one solution which works for everything, um, because a lot of uh, we're veering off into talking about software development here. But um, there is no one solution. There's no one way to do absolutely uh, to solve every single problem. If you want to solve um, crossword puzzles, then the solution you will come up with for a piece of software which solves cross crossword puzzles will be different to software which solves Sudoku puzzles, mm. which then will be different to solving 
word uh, word search or word scramble puzzles, you know, and making software which draws um, alien figures on screen that you can zap with a rifle will be different to the code which solves the problem of how do we run from left to right collecting all the bananas, mm. right? And and accepting that there is no one way to solve the problem is, I think, probably the best way to but, do it. Mm. Sorry, we've, we've veered off. Can into I say one last thing? I'm sorry, but you've, it, it mm, brought up it. actually a life lesson I learned from, from John Carmack. I, he oh. didn't mean it as a life lesson, but we were talking about, you know, this is, I don't know what year, two, what year Doom 3 came out, but, you know, in that era... Um, there was, you know, there were there were new graphics cards coming out every year, and mm. um, oh, I forget the name of the company that did Comanche, and and I forget some of the they did helicopter um, simulations and things. But there, what what he talked about was he said that people that when it comes to graphics, people are always coming up with elegant solutions. Uh, like voxels, do you remember voxels? Or um, mm-hmm. and what he said was, but in the end, it's always raw power that that makes the difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that's a that's applicable to graphics, but it's applicable to a lot of things in life. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Um, it's slightly related, but again, I, when I'm mentoring young developers, I say to them. Your boss, whoever your boss is, doesn't care how you solve the problem, just that you solved the problem, right? It doesn't matter if you use this language or that language or this framework or this tool or you, or if you quite literally copied the code from somewhere else. Because all that matters is, from your boss's point of view, when I push the button, it gives me money. Or I push the button and it gives me, you know, whatever. It, 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 like, it doesn't matter... For instance, let's say if you're building the software which runs a pacemaker, it doesn't matter how you've done it as long as it keeps someone's heart pumping, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that is the most important thing. Yeah. And I think you, you're absolutely right there, Stephen. When it, when it comes to solving the problem, if you just need more power, then give me more power and we'll solve the problem mm-hmm. rather than wasting time coming up with a wonderfully elegant solution. Well, I am absolutely right, but John Carmack was absolutely right before me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take credit for it. I mean, I mean, you can take credit for it because you told me, so that means <laughs> you created it, right? <laughs> Remember, he also has, along with everything else, John Carmack has a black belt in judo. I think I'll stay on his good side. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> stay on his good side or you in end up case, on your backside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. In that case, let's just continue with the idea that he came up with it. Mm. That's fine. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to get beaten up by anybody. <laughs> it's time for another question, right? Yeah, yeah, Squidge. So can okay, you take so, Glanks? Yeah, that- Glanks. Okay, so I, I can resonate with this because I'm a bit of a um, bit of a retro collector myself. I like to collect stuff from my uh, my childhood that I remember playing and play it again, hook it up to a big TV and sit there and just have the memories flooding back. So this is a bit of a three-pronged one. It's not really... Anyway, so he asked, um, would be interesting to know um, your take on modern titles, on what modern titles will be historically relevant in 20 years. So prime example, what does a top 10 list of games look like in 20 to 30 years? And do you think people will be clamoring for the cartridge copy of uh, Breath of the Wild 
in like 20 odd years time. Boy, that's a great. I know there's a lot there. I think Breath of the Wild is a great game. I think people, I think that people will be clamoring for the that title in 20 years, but not because of the game itself. Also, because it's part of the entire Zelda franchise. Hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, if I were to look at the last five or five or maybe eight years, uh, and these are games I certainly have not played all the way through. I think that Ghosts of Tsushima and and The Witcher Three probably mm. will be two games that people will be looking at a long time from now and referring to them as masterpieces. Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of indie games that you know, and I haven't spent much time on indie games, but I think there are a lot of indie games that people will be looking at in the future that I can't comment on that are probably very, very brilliant. Uh, mm. Flappy Bird, probably not among them. Um, <laughs> although I love Flappy Bird for what, he, what the guy did was amazing to me. AAA titles. They fit with that innovator pioneer uh, metaphor you used earlier on, where the indie games will innovate on something and create some kind of control scheme or some kind of game mechanic. And then the pioneers will come along and go, let's build a AAA title which has that in it, but it is not it's not the, the, the killer feature of that app, right? It has so it'll have a flappy bird like a level, but the rest of the game is I don't know, FIFA or something, right? Really bad example, but those are the two two titles that came to my mind. I've I've got a bit of a story of Witcher 3, if you don't mind me interjecting. Um, A friend of mine, I got Witcher 3, haven't played the previous ones, right? Heard a lot about Witcher 3, and I thought this is going to be a rolling, massive RPG. You got a horse. I I heard all the things about the horse just popping up everywhere, like on top of buildings and stuff. I wanted to experience it myself, right? And a friend of mine, a friend of the show, Chief Problems, he said, there is an awesome quest right near the beginning, and what you've got to do is you've got to get a frying pan for this woman. So me being me, I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to find this. I looked everywhere, right? And I found this quest. And it's, you, you go into a house. It's not really a spoiler at this point. You go into this house. You get this frying pan. You realize that the person who broke in had been murdered, right? And you get this frying pan for this little old woman. And that's, that's essentially it. Right, you go outside and you go. You don't want to go in there yet. Here's your frying pan, and she makes she makes a massive thing about. I've got to give you something. No, please, I really don't need anything. Just shush. I've got to get you something, and she gives you a loaf of bread. Right. To annoy my friend, after doing that, I said, "Right, I've completed it now." I didn't realize how short Witcher Three was. You can't have completed. I've gone back on it and I've got like halfway through, I think. But just to annoy him, I went, "Yeah, I've completed it. I got her a frying pan. The job done. Next game." You can't do that. I have. I got a loaf of bread. Game over. Credits. Everything. Really wound him up because I I thought if he's going to try and spoil a little bit for me, I'm going to wind him up. (laughs) (laughs) You can't tell me I'm going to save a frying pan for an old woman. I'm going to wind you up now. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll ask you guys too, but I'll start by giving mine the most insidious puzzle I ever played in a game. Um, the one I will give you was from a game, an old PC game. I think it was called Ching. It was about the underground, like, you know, that huge, uh, 
underground burial city, the one with the terracotta warriors. And you know, in this game, you mm-hmm. fall into it and you explore it. It's a, it was very. It was from a time period where everyone wanted to be missed. Um, mm. Now, of course, no one wants to be missed, but that's besides the point. Uh, <laughs> anyways, but there was this one puzzle where you were walking by a stream, and you had to catch a fish. Have I told you guys this story? No, you have. So you had to catch a fish. You go through all your inventory, and you can even put together in your inventory a fishing rod. You can take sticks and beat the water to try and knock a fish out. You can. You had lots of inventory. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. So you know how you caught the fish in that game? If you waited four minutes, a fish would jump out. But every time you touched your mouse, pressed a key, or did anything, the timer restarted. So most people who who passed that level, they got a phone call or they had to go to the bathroom, you know? Right. They, so they pass it accidentally. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that to me sounds really, really stupid because it's like, We'll give you the puzzle, but we won't even give you a hint at what the solution is. Like I say, it's the most right? insidious puzzle that, I know. Are, uh, you know, it wasn't yeah, a great selling game. Those are the game. worst puzzles. Mm. Okay. I mean, that, that might be why, right? Because perhaps none of the reviewers could get past that bug. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I'd call it a bug, but I will say that it came out at a time where people were also moving away from missed games. Yeah. Sure, sure. So that level of patience wasn't there. Even when, yeah, yeah. Um, when I think games, Mist is pretty far from what I'm thinking of. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mist is kind of like an interactive slideshow, right? That's yeah. exactly <laughs> what it is. And, and the other thing yeah. is that um, Mist came out of... One, there are times where things benefit... They, they have momentum simply because they have momentum. Uh, mm-hmm. Mist had been a big thing on, on Apple, on Macintosh. So it came out to PC and people on PCs, which were a huge, much bigger, you know, they wanted to join into the snobbishness of Apple. And hmm. games certainly looked better on, you know, Mist certainly looked better than any game they'd ever seen before. Uh, but again, it was a slideshow. Those were some very pretty slides. By today's standards, of course, Mist looks pretty old. But in its day, mm. you know, I don't remember the the time it came out, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like here's a font of water. If I touch it just in the right place, the font fills up. It was so exciting. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Those sort of hidden. Um, Hidden object puzzle games can be quite hard to play, but uh, it, it, like like you said, it, it is because like it was built, it was built in slideshow software. Yeah, right. Mm. That's why I said it's like an interactive slideshow. It quite literally was. <laughs> you know, the, the gulf between a mist and an uh, adventure on Monkey Island um, is they're they're pretty similar, but to this mm-hmm. day. People playing Monkey Island games still have fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, you, as long as you don't mention Monkey Combat to them. <laughs> <laughs> Less said about that, the better, think, I think. 
I think that's what makes people go back to them, right? Because of the fun element. The fun element. Because that's that's what yeah, that's what Mist didn't capture. Mist has this like you say, it looks gorgeous. Um, and it was released specifically for one format originally. Mm. And then everyone who didn't have a Macintosh was saying, hey, I want to play this, but I don't want to spend $5,000 on a computer to play it or, you know, whatever the value was, mm. right? Um, and so, yeah, so then when it came to PC-compatible um, format, it was fighting against, um, like you say, it was fighting against the Monkey Island games because they were fun to play, and that's mm. the difference, right? <laughs> Can I... Just tell you one fun story from early in my career, and then I know I'm slowing you down. We'll have to get to the next. By this, you'll like this story. You'll get a kick out of this story. And here I am, not only swallowing my boot this time, but I'm up to my thigh now. Um, it, it it was. I definitely got to hear this thing. It was early in my career. I was only writing for the Seattle Times. My editor at the tech section of the Seattle Times would give me lots of assignments, and then he'd wonder if anybody was was actually reading my stuff. And it came to a point, you know, this was very early in my career, where he said, look, you know, I'm not sure anybody is reading this. Maybe it's time to stop doing these. And I said, well, if I can prove that a lot of people are reading my my articles, can we keep going? You know, my vote doesn't. They were the the only people I was writing for at that point. He's like, yeah, if you can, you know, if you can get like a lot of people to write in, then yeah. So I wrote my next article, which included the sentence that the worst thing about Macintosh computers was the people who used them. <laughs> he never questioned my readership ever again. <laughs> is, it, is it a good time to mention that I've got a Macintosh computer? <laughs> <laughs> Macs are great. I mean, that's one way to get people to write in. Yeah, Macs know? are great. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that, and there's really nothing wrong with people who use Macs either. But they were touchy. You know, they're very proud to be Macintosh <laughs> users. You make a comment like that, and nine out of ten times they'll hold up their their laptop and say, "Oh, I've got a Macintosh computer." Um, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, that that was that was just a throwaway line that was guaranteed to make every Mac user in Seattle upset. And mm-hmm. boy howdy it worked. Mm. <laughs> it's always a great way to find out whether someone's consuming your content to do that, right? Mm. Um there's this uh, it's it's a real thing that happens in the well. It used to happen in the UK. Lots of different cartographers would get together and draw maps, like the Ordnance Survey map of the UK, which is like where all the roads are, where all the houses are, things like uh, church steeples and uh, restaurants and things like that. Essentially, Google Maps on paper, right? So, but what they would, what each um, company would do is they would invent things and add them to their own maps, things that weren't there. Paper town. So you'd have like, oh, this is a church. Yeah, right, a paper town, yeah. So it didn't so it didn't exist. And then that way they would know if someone has copied their map. So they would buy all of their competitors' maps and then check for the hidden things that aren't that weren't real. Hmm. And it feels like that's a it's a it's a similar thing that you could do. Yeah, I think that with the printed word you have more chance of uh, offending someone. Hmm. <laughs> that's the that's the problem. <laughs> These days everyone yeah. wants to get offended anyways. Okay, so we we have we have a, a comment from MVG. Now, this isn't MVG, modern vintage gamer who works for um, Night Dive Studios. This is my friend Mad Viking God, 
and he's, he's all about the NES. And so he said, the NES had a weird streak of taking on a completely different game and slapping a Nintendo IP on it and calling it a sequel. So examples like Super Mario Brothers 2 over here or The Legend of Zelda 2. So he's, he's wondering, what are your thoughts on, on those sort of titles? Uh, Doku Doku Panic, to, in my view, was a disaster. Um, <laughs> uh, yep. Link... Adventure of Link. What was it? It was just Link, wasn't it? Uh, mm, I was not yeah, a huge fan of that the one, of Link. especially because I had one of those. I had one of those cartridges that forgot would forget that you passed the castle. Yeah. So, sure. you know, I I can't tell you how many times I thought, okay, tomorrow I'm going to beat you know the last castle, only to turn it on and find out that nope, I've got to find out. Go back to this castle way over here, beat it all over again, and then make my way all the way back and fight the main, the, the final battle. And that did not make me happy. I don't know that I ever finished that <laughs> game because of that. Um, that makes- you know, that was so interesting because that was 89, I believe. No, it might have been 90 when they came out. 89 or 90. Mm. And I still remember walking into the store when people were still just saying that Super Mario 2 and, and, and a sequel to Zelda were coming out. And I walked into the store, and there they were on the shelves. The, the store charged 10 extra bucks for the games, but you could have them right then and the, there. And boy, I had my money ready right away. Um, and both games were disappointing. Really disappointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, the high point for me in sequels on the NES was probably Double Dragon 2, oh, which I game. thought was a wonderful game. Um, mm-hmm. Really wonderful. Graphically gorgeous to look at. Uh Challenging, but doable. Mm. Well, the very end was pretty darn challenging. Yeah. But <laughs> great game. Um, but yeah, you know, it's ridiculous to take Doki Doki Panic and say, this is the new Mario. You know, Mario on a flying carpet doesn't work for me. And for that matter, Mario <laughs> with a pressure washer didn't work for me either. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that was a bit odd. Yep. That one. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose though that's what happens when you when you have a title like the the original Super Mario Brothers 2 was deemed too difficult for western audiences. So they were like, well, what do we do? I know, we'll take this really weird game that was produced for a radio station. Do a palette swap and release that, right? But I suppose the, the good thing about um, Super Mario Brothers 2 over here in the West is um, it actually gave it gave Nintendo the chance to have the world's first openly trans video game character. So uh, Birdo um, mm. is actually a trans creature. It actually says in the instruction manual, Birdo is you know is uh, is is male but likes to likes to, and 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 is but represents themselves as female. So I think. 
That, uh, but maybe that was just Nintendo of America going, hey, what if a kid could play dress up in this weird and wacky world? You know, maybe I'm attributing way too much to Nintendo. You do know the story about um, Final Fight. Oh, you, you uh, can't leave us hanging. Come on. Ooh. So, yeah, please. So, you know, they did Final Fight was oh, the this- launch games for the NES, Capcom. And they is, got is this it. the story of Poison by chance? What? Sorry. I just had, is, is this the story behind the character of Poison? I'm by not any sure. Chance? I don't know if I know the name, but, but mm. you know, so they got the game. It was a very good port of the arcade game. And then Howard Lincoln called the president of Capcom up. I think it was Maurice at the time and said, can you come on over? And he came over and he said, we can't, we can't run this game. We won't sell this game. And Maurice, said, why? And he said, because there's no violence against women on Nintendo platforms. Ah. And so Maurice, said, there's no violence against women in this game. And they started playing the game. And, you know, you don't have to go very far before this woman with the cap and the stockings comes out. And boom, 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 down she goes. And Maurice, not missing it, repeats it. Oh, you mean the transvestite? <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. That that character um in in later like Street Fighter games, I think they they were referred to as poison. And there was a whole thing behind um like what you just said, they they, they represent themselves as female mm. but they're not, sort of thing. And mm. in the fighting games it is very clear that they think they're a female but they're not actually a female. That's why I said is this the poison story because mm. the character's called right. Poison. Yeah. I was really sorry to interrupt you there, but I, oh, I no. kind of knew where this was going because I've, I've read a lot into that. I just got so fascinated by it, you know, before. That's a very interesting way to get around Nintendo's seal of approval. Yeah, yeah definitely. Nintendo, Nintendo let it be. I like it. Mm, fair enough. I like it. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Um, so friend of the show, Tyron, has said, I'd love to learn your thoughts on PC uh, history too. Um, a lot of the coverage on uh, video games seems to be ten- centered around consoles rather than PC titles, with the exception of World of Warcraft. So what genres of PC games um, do you... Uh, what genres of games of PC? Okay, sorry, yeah. Let me try that again. So uh, what genres of PC games do you think that modern gaming have to thank for? So like uh, maybe FPSs or strategy games or any like any particular titles, right? You know, originally the ultimate history of video games, to me a video game is a console game, a portable game. I would now include mobile games and arcade games. PC and computer games were a separate thing to me. Originally I was going to do a book, my book, my first title thought was Electronic Playground and... I would do electronic playground for video games and electronic p- playground for PC games. Um, what happened was somebody stole the, um, or like, I think it was electronic. Anyways, somebody stole part of my title and I had to walk away from it. And then I found myself mm-hmm. more interested in, in the history of consoles because PC, not so much that PC wasn't interesting, it's fascinating, it, but it's sprawling. You know, whereas you can follow the narrative, you can follow the the two thousands by looking at Sony, Sega, you know, Nintendo. You couldn't do that, you or the nineties at least. You couldn't do that with PC. Um, you know, it would be a very very difficult book to write and to to narrate. 
but it's fascinating. It's an incredibly fascinating. Obviously, FPS came out of um, out of PCs and really fairly early on. Although you can make a very strong argument that before there was FPS on PC, that, you know, before there was Doom or or, or the original Castle or Castle Wolfenstein. Um, there was Night Driver on the Atari on the Atari arcade mm. game, which was first person. Certainly, Red Baron and Battles and Battle. Um, oh come on, what is it? I, I want to say Battlefront, but it's not Battlefront. You know the the Atari tank game. They, they, you, you, battle tanks? Is it Battle tanks? No, it's not Battle tanks. It's Battle. Oh, I can't believe I'm not. Oh, this is battle. <laughs> uh, anyways, so uh, battle zone. Question mark, right? Battle zone. <laughs> battle zone. Yes. So yeah. both of those were FPS. You know, they simply took out the turret from Battle Zone and the dual machine guns from Red Baron, and and you know now you were one. You were running. You weren't in a vehicle, but those were first person mm. perspective, um, nonetheless. So you could you could make an argument that you know that Carmack and Chris and, and Looking Glass stole from the arcade and then improved and, and reformed, but at that point I don't think it's fair or true. Um, hmm. But my my point is FPS came from PC and went and went. Um, people don't like to admit it, but Madden NFL was a PC game long before it, it went to console. Yeah. Uh, it used to be that there was this great division be, because when you played a PC game, you were generally at a desk, which meant you had a mouse, and you could do very fine movements with a mouse. Mm. Um, whereas, whereas if you were playing a console game, you had a controller, and the and the controller was better for broad movements. And so, my favorite genre from the PC, I'm going to show how very old I am, was RTS games. I just adore RTS games. Uh, that mm. they never translate well to to console because you really wanted a mouse to be able to control them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that, does that answer the question? That makes sense, right? You look at, <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Um, I think it does, and I think um, you raise a really good point about RTSs on uh, consoles because if you take like a Command and Conquer, you quite literally have to use that fine motor movement of select, you know, draw a box around the the units you want to move, move to where the units are going to move, and then tell them to move there. That's all fine motor control. Yeah. Whereas like. Yeah, I can draw a box with a with a PlayStation controller or an N sixty four controller, but it's not going to be as as good. Um, as I won't have as much control over the size of that box, the position of that box, as as I would on a PC. And because of that, it will be a bit clunky me moving whatever pointer I'm using to that position. Um, and because of that. It could be that you end up sending the units off in the wrong direction. And because of that, the game then slows down. Or rather, it feels like it speeds up and it gets more frantic because you've sent them in the wrong direction accidentally, right? What was the Atari arcade game where you, know, you had the cannons and you were... 
it was a, it was like an RTS almost. And between rounds, you'd build your walls around your castle. And it's once you couldn't seal your castle, that's when you lost. Refer to a wall. Uh, the name I'm of drawing, the game. I'm drawing a blank. I think I know what you're on about, but I'm drawing a blank completely. I can't you believe I, I, I own that game. I used to play with my kids one. all the time, and I always remember, you know, once you'd fought lots of battles, they'd come out for the last one. And they'd say "final battle," and you know, it was a great game. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm forgetting it. it. Was oh, the name of it was such you know, a good I'm gonna, game. I'm going to look it up. And they tried it's Rampart. Rampart. Yes. Oh, yes. Rampart. Yes. And mm. they, they did imp- yes. import it to NES and Super NES, and I think Genesis, too. Um, but again, still hard to play with, with. And that one was such a watered-down version of RTS. Mm. Mm. I am um, the one and only RTS game I could ever play, and I've tried... Tons of them over the years, and I just I just can't do them. The one and only RTS game I could ever play was on a console, and it was Command and Conquer for the Sega Saturn. The only game I actually completed. You could play that. Obviously, both sides. <laughs> I yeah, I could, and I completed both campaigns with a pad. Wow. And as far as I'm concerned, I've peaked. I don't need to play any other RTS because Command and Conquer with a pad was difficult enough. You know, like I say, did you, you ever know, try you, it on you, PC you are... though? I never got round to it. I played some of the the further installments, so like Tiberian Sun. There was a couple of um, Red Alerts. I played. I played like Command and Conquer Three when that came out. You know, the the I dabbled a bit in generals, but I just I I don't know what it was. It was the the clunky movement and the the like half an hour pitch battle with the pad made it for me. The, the, the being too precise and being exactly where it needs to be, just it wasn't to me. That wasn't Command and Conquer. It had to be on a pad. It had to be like a pitch battle, just to try and get stuff working. But I man, I did manage to complete both discs, Very you know, on the Saturn, and it it took me a long time, but I managed it. And the thing is, I haven't touched an RTS since, and I think that's why. <laughs> just, nah, can't just nah. <laughs> like I said earlier on, you're willing to go through punishment for your entertainment, right, Squidge? Yes, I'm uh, glutton for punishment sometimes uh, when, when, when I want to be. Fair enough. You know. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay. Uh, well, I, I guess the. <laughs> I'm looking at our, our community comments, and the last one is about VR. Well, so, no, no, no. There's um, one more. I'd like to ask oh, okay. if, if we've got time. Going, um, it's a bit of a hot topic. I mean, I have the time. Do you have the time? Do, yeah, do, do you have the time? I'm fine. We've got, got okay. another 20 minutes if we need it. Okay. Um, so it's a bit of a hot topic depending on who you talk to. And I always get different answers no matter who I ask. Uh, it's one of those one of those really good questions. Um, a lot of things get taken into consideration when I ask this question, so I'll just ask it and, and see how you go from there. Do you think games are easier now? Or do you think it's back in the day the hardware wasn't up to the level that we've got now? So do you think the older games were harder? Or the, is it the newer games are easier? It's a bit so of a hot the, topic, this one. That question is a wonderful question. Um, what I'm going to say, though, is 
that they've become harder and easier in different ways. So mm. if you were playing, you know, a Pac-Man, you didn't have to worry about a single button playing Pac-Man, mm. you know, um, and, and, and ignoring that there was, um, that there were patterns, you know, if you didn't know the patterns, it was all simply based on reflex, you know, and, and there was a certain amount of luck. You know, you brought up earlier what really was Super Mario Brothers 2. Um, you know, you'd run to the cliff, you'd jump, and then there'd be a, a, a wind that would come randomly, and you'd fall to your death even if you timed the, the jump perfectly. It, it was so random. It was so arbitrary. The, mm. the old games mm-hmm. required an incredible amount of reflex on a certain level, but you didn't have to worry about other extra buttons. You know, I, I can mm. play a game of, of Ms. Pac-Man, especially Ms. Pac-Man on speed, and lasts a pretty, pretty long time because I'm used mm. to not looking at buttons. But all of a sudden you give me buttons and I have to start worrying about finger dexterity. And... And this new generation has grown up. You know, I mean, when 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 Defender came out, people looked at Defender and they said, "This is impossible." There are four buttons on it. Uh, people looked at Robotron. Eugene Jarvis, who created them both, will tell you that his whole point with Robotron was that most people couldn't pat their heads and rub their stomachs at the same time. Well, <laughs> yeah. um, this new generation. Is a lot has a lot more ability to coordinate at different ta- tasks at the same time, and so I think in some ways for them, well, these new junk games are a little easier. Actually, they can last longer. You know, these kids can pick up and and play um, play Call of Duty on on their keyboard and mouse. My generation, we we, we don't even think about it. You know, we just look at it and move along. Um, mm. <laughs> it, it, it's not that it's too hard for us. It's that it's impossible. And yet I think that some of these kids who can do those things run out of patience for the 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 challenges of, of some of the new games as well. So for me, I, I will tell you that I can't imagine, you know, some of these games are so impossibly hard, you know, the old, the new games that I can't even, you know, imagine how they, they do it, especially when it's, you know, remember all these keys on your keyboard. I I got to to watch the Korean champion play StarCraft against the Canadian ones. And I was, they purposely, mm-hmm. I was a guest of the nation of Korea at that point. And so they had me stand right behind them. And... I could see the Korean champion, and he was such a machine. He he knew every button. He ever had everything mapped out almost instantly. You know, so the hotkeys and things, and and it was unbelievable to me to me to watch that. It's it, it's an experience watching it, and it just you think they can't move that fast. The hands don't move, but things are happening, and it's just blare. <laughs> It's just well, a blare, but I've 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 watched some of it, and it's just how, just how. <laughs> yeah, I, I can move my hands that quickly, but 
You want me to choose which button I'm supposed to, print, to, to press while I'm doing that? Not a chance. You know, I mean, I can pretend like I'm a master pianist, you know, but, but wait, you want me to do it on an actual Great. keyboard playing actual music? Never mind. <laughs> Great thing to say there, Stephen, is if somebody says you're not playing the correct notes, it's a really old British stand-up joke. You say, I'm playing the correct notes just not necessarily in the correct mm. order. <laughs> That's what you say. But I think, I think to your point there about um, the, the slightly older games, right? The more, the more retro games, the, the earlier titles, they were taking this idea of an arcade machine and bringing it into the home, right? And arcade games, no matter how much, no matter how you look at them, an arcade cabinet game, is designed so you put a quarter in, you get 10 to 15 minutes, if that, of entertainment, then you've got to put another quarter in. Right. Because if you if you put one quarter in and get five hours of gameplay, it's not going to make any money, is they it? They actually want that to be 10 to 15 seconds, not 10 to 15 minutes. Ah, they want okay. they want you to die quickly. Those games were made mm-hmm. so that you would have a lot of fun, you would die quickly, you would see what you did wrong, and you would think, I can eat I, I won't make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. I, I had a good friend named Fred Watson. <laughs> he's not going to be listening. He's in Hawaii, unfortunately. I wish Fred could hear this because he would love <laughs> to be invoked or he'd get a kick out of it. He's been invoked. But he knew the patterns to Star Wars Arcade. You know, that wonderful Star Wars, um, you know, yeah, Vexar game. And... And, yeah. or vector game. He knew all the patterns. So we went to an arcade once. We got $10 worth of quarters. He took, he took two quarters and left me with $9.50 worth. And went down and started playing Star Wars. And not all that long later, I was standing in the group watching him play Star Wars because I'd run out of quarters by the already. <laughs> And maybe 15 or 20 minutes after that, I just left the arcade because I was bored watching. I didn't want to keep on watching all night. <laughs> um, you know, well, guess which one of us, the arcade owner, was happy to see the following day, right? <laughs> um, I've, I've got a similar thing with, I don't play it as much now, um, but I've got a similar thing with the original House of the Dead mm-hmm. arcade unit um i played a lot of it on the saturn back in the day and i had one of those third party um light guns you know that would occasionally sync up to the screen and you wouldn't have to shoot off screen to hit targets and what have you and um i played that much of it that i remember one time me and Gia went to the uh, the seaside and that's where classically in, in the uk as well the arcade machines are you know to pump your money into mm-hmm. And I had one credit, and House of the Dead has got four stages and then a boss battle, like your, your gauntlet. And I got, on one credit, I got to halfway through the boss gauntlet at the end. Mm. Then it hit me, and I just went, oh, okay, that'll do. And I'm, you, you know, you put your initials in to the high score, and then you walk away. I have no idea how he stood and watched me, because it must have been boring. Because <laughs> of how much I put, how much... I memorized everything, especially on the Saturn. It was never never the same way twice. So I memorized everything. 
and I just had a light gun in my hand, and I got all the way to the end, and I went, yeah, okay, fair enough, I put the gun down. I don't know how we continued watching, because I was just stood there for a good, must have been about 25 minutes to get to the end. And I thought, I'm not putting, I'm not putting any more money in, that'll do. So I, I don't know how we, he stood there. I didn't draw a crowd. It was just, it was one of those bang, bang, shooty, oh, he's, he's playing that. Not realising that I was stood there, you know, this this toy gun in my hand, femme grip, sweaty palms, just thinking, I'm going to do this. You know, so I, I don't know how he how he did it. I really don't. I tell you how I did it. I tell you how I did it. Our mum sent us out to the arcades. I had to look after you. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that, that is <laughs> That's a, what it was. Yeah. My, it must have been weird seeing a, sh- a short kid with a light gun in his hand stay there for twenty five minutes shooting anything he sees. It must it must have been a sight. <laughs> my wife, um, a beautiful tiny woman, a very beautiful woman, and intelligent. Used to, used to babysit at a home that had a, a Space Invaders game. So she's one of those people who can play Space Invaders until she gets bored. You know, the, the, those guys are never going to get her, or at least back then when we when we were dating. It's been you know thirty years now, but back then when we were dating, the, those the invaders were never going to get her. They were never going to. It would never come all that close. She just, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I made the mistake of playing her once. <laughs> I mean, you make that mistake once, don't you? Yeah. yeah just yeah, the yeah. once. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, what I'll say, Stephen, I know that we're running out no, of time. No, if you've got one more question, let's get done. Well, okay, so the, 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 the last question was essentially... Um, what are your thoughts on the future of VR, right? We kind of hinted yeah. at that towards the beginning, didn't we? Here We said that VR is kind of in its infancy and it still needs some sort of external stuff and that augmented to happen reality to, sort of, really to sort of build it up. Where things are going. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I stand yeah. by that. Yep, yeah. and that makes sense, right? Um, okay, so like I said, um, uh, Stephen, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again awesome. today. Uh, I had a load of fun. Um, and if you'll forgive me, Please do forgive me for getting the title of the oh. book wrong. I think I got it wrong about 15 times. Don't even times. worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, definitely, if you are watching or listening to this, because we're going to release a video and an audio version of it, and you haven't read Stephen's books, definitely go check them out. Um, because if you are interested in how we got from the early, you know, the early 70s all the way up to now in video gaming, you're gonna you're gonna have a wonderful time reading them, and even if you're not really that interested in video gaming anyway, if you're interested in history of entrepreneurship, you'll also gain a lot of insight and insight into like popular culture as well. Mm. So whoever you are, I'm sure that these books are, are applicable to you. So definitely go and check those well, out. It's one of those things you don't know where you are until you know where you've been. You know, That's greater it. understanding, yeah, exactly. you'll have a greater appreciation for what you've got now if you know where it came from. You know, Absolutely. and the struggles and all that. So definitely, Absolutely. definitely worth yeah. going out and reading it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Go definitely check out Stephen's books. Um, Stephen, thank you ever so much for spending some time with us again today. I know that it's really early in your morning and you have, uh, I'm guessing, an incredibly exciting afternoon planned and you've been talking to us all this time. So hopefully you can go and do your exciting things. Thank <laughs> it's been a blast. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute blast.
Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Daguet. See the show notes for more details.